Uh, we're going to start with what is commonly thought of as the prologue to the Gospel of John this morning. So we'll start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we're going to read through verse 18. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the word of the Lord. So we are starting today, obviously, with the first part of John 1. As I said, this is known commonly as the prologue, and it is, you may have noticed this, it is sort of poetic in nature. It does sort of have kind of a poetic form to it, and it not only introduces this book, but it also introduces several key themes that we will see throughout this book over and over and over again throughout the gospel. And we're going to look at the first five of those themes this morning. And I call this uh, a gospel not simply because the gospel is found in its pages, not simply because uh, the story of the good news of Jesus is found in the pages, but also because uh, this story is presented in a particular literary form that has come to be known as a gospel. You have four gospels in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I hope most of us know those. Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's a weird J. <laughs> But there are not four different gospel messages. These are four books that fall into the literary genre of gospel. Um, and, and this is a genre where uh, there's sort of a biographical thing going on here, but, but it's a bridge. It's a biography about Jesus, but we don't get the full story of his life, right? 
we get little snapshots of his life, and that's especially true as we will see in John's gospel. So, so there are four of these, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they are traditionally thought to have been authored by these four men. Historical tradition, church tradition, Matthew was one of Jesus's disciples, one of the apostles. Uh, Mark, who's also known as John Mark, was a close associate of the apostle Peter, and so Mark's gospel is often linked to Peter. Uh, Luke was a doctor who was a very close associate um, and companion of the Apostle Paul. He also wrote the book of Acts. And then we have John. And um, there is John the Apostle, uh, the son of Zebedee, who is generally thought, and I would say historically thought, to be the author of this book, along with uh, what are called the Johnian epistles, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, also the book of Revelation. Um, There's also a figure in the early church known as John the Elder, and over the years some people have hypothesized that maybe this gospel was written by John the Elder, but I think that seems pretty unlikely. Um, so, So more than likely you have a gospel written directly by an apostle here with Matthew, also here with John, and then Mark and Luke are directly linked to the personal accounts of apostles through Peter and Paul. John probably goes the farthest in inserting himself into the story, which, which is fine. He was there. He was an eyewitness. But, but he also talks about himself a little bit, as you will see throughout this book. Um, but none of the other Gospels, including the Gospel of John, actually name their author. Like this, if you remember with like the Minor Prophets when we were studying those, some of those books would start out by saying, uh, the word of the Lord came to this person. The word of the Lord came to Hosea and said this. Um, and so we associate the book with Hosea. Um, and you'll see in the letters of Paul, Paul will say, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the church in wherever, right? He identifies himself. We don't really get that here in the Gospels. And I kind of think that's intentional because these guys are not the point, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're not the subject. They're not the one that this story is about. This is about Jesus, And very early on in the history of the church, uh, all four of these books were compiled very quickly into not not scrolls, but into more of an actual book uh, that's called today a codex. They were put together and all four of these were called the gospel. That's how they were titled. And then as you flipped through, you would find the gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark, Luke, John. And so that's how the early church and many early um, uh, ancient people, first century people interacted with these books. Uh, More than likely, Mark is the oldest of these, probably written in the late 50s AD. Um, Matthew and Luke, it's kind of a toss up as to which one of those is next in line. They were probably written in about the same time period in the 60s AD. But more than likely, John is decidedly the last of these. And um, by most accounts, John was probably written somewhere between 70 A.D. to 100 A.D. So we have a larger period of time there. Um, 100 A.D. probably would have been right around the end of John's lifetime. And so somewhere in that period of time, he's writing this gospel. And it is the most different of all of these. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are commonly referred to as synoptic gospels. 
synoptic gospels. And the reason why they're called synoptic gospels is because um, they are presented in such a way where there is a lot of similarity among these three. Um, many of the same stories are told. In some cases, like identical wording is used in the stories. Um, in some cases, like the stories are placed in almost exactly the same place in the gospel itself. Um, so they are referred to as synoptic gospels. More than likely, if Mark was written first, it's quite possible that Matthew or Luke um, had access to Mark's gospel and borrowed from it in structuring what they were writing. Um, and the same is, is true of John as well. John certainly would have had access to these or would have been aware of these or would have been knowledgeable, certainly, of the contents of these gospels. But John's gospel is very different. Um, and let me just walk through a few ways that John's gospel is different. First of all, John contains a number of things that are not found in the synoptic gospels. Um, one of those is that his very first miracle was turning water into wine at the wedding at Cana. You know, like one of the most famous things Jesus ever did, only found in the Gospel of John. Another big one is uh, the resurrection of Lazarus, if you remember that story. It's where we get the famous shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, right? And Jesus raised Lazarus back from the dead. We only find that story in the Gospel of John. Um, it's only in John that we find the account of Jesus' interaction with the Pharisee Nicodemus, where he famously says, you must be born again, only in John. And most of the time, uh, those differences are not problematic in any way. Um, they can be chalked up to John being an eyewitness who is not trying to follow the pattern of the synoptics. Um, you could also speculate that John knew the contents of the synoptic gospels and was very intentionally trying to pin a gospel that filled in some of the things that had maybe been left out by the synoptic gospels or had not been included by the synoptics. Remember, these are not exhaustive biographies. They aren't exhaustive accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus. They are snapshots of the life and ministry of Jesus. Um, that said, there are a couple of challenges that we'll encounter along the way. Um, one in particular, and, and, and talked about a great deal, is the story of Jesus clearing out the temple. In the Synoptic Gospels, that's something that happens at the very end of Jesus' ministry. In fact, during Holy Week, like after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, middle of the week, like right before he goes to the cross, he goes into the temple and makes a whip and drives out everybody that's buying and selling in the temple. In John's Gospel, it happens in chapter 2, right at the very beginning, seemingly, of Jesus' ministry. And so that's, that's one of the uh, maybe uh, discrepancies that we'll encounter along the way that we'll have to address. Um, another one that we see is uh, just the timeline of the crucifixion. There are some differences between the Synoptic Gospels and the Gospel of John as to how the actual timeline of Jesus' arrest and crucifixion play out, and so we'll address those later on in the story as well. But, but that's not all. Um, let me quote to you. This is uh, theologian Don Carson. There are no narrative parables in John, which is something that is so associated with Jesus. 
There is no account of the transfiguration, no record of the institution of the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of John, no report of Jesus casting out a demon, no mention of Jesus' temptations. Those are big, significant things that we don't find in the Gospel of John. He goes on, there are fewer brief, pithy utterances and more discourses, more longer speeches. Um, but some discourses that are found in the Synoptic Gospels are not found in John, most notably when we talked about recently the Olivet Discourse. We, not, we don't find that in John. Also, Jesus' baptism, not in John. The calling of the Twelve, um, we don't find that explicitly talked about in John's Gospel. Um, Carson says, even themes... Themes central to the synoptics have almost disappeared. In particular, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, which is so much a part of the preaching of Jesus in the synoptic gospels and is a central theme of his narrative parables, are scarcely mentioned as such. So a lot of differences here, guys, but this should not concern us. It shouldn't give us pause. John realizes that all of those things are already out there. Um, over the years, um, some critics of the Bible, some critics of Christian faith ha have, have seized this as an opportunity to, like, poke holes in the story. But um, you've probably heard the analogy before that the four Gospels are presented all together because they are meant to be the perspective of four different vantage points. And, and the common use analogy here is like if, if we all witnessed a car wreck out here and somebody was standing on the other side of the street and somebody's down the street and somebody's over here and somebody's inside the room in here, we all see the same car wreck. So there's similarities that we're all going to describe, but because we have slightly different vantage points, we're going to talk about it in different ways. Or maybe there are certain things I saw that other people didn't see. That's often how the four Gospels are approached and I think why God gives all four of these to us in his word. So that shouldn't concern us. Um, and, and John makes it clear from the beginning here that, that he is just trying to do something completely different from what the other three are trying to do. So let's look at our text this morning. Um, and in these short 18 verses that we read, John introduces five key themes that we're going to see over and over again. And so, let's begin verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. John begins in a very different place from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew starts with uh, like an earthly genealogy of Jesus and the story of his birth. Mark begins with the story of John the Baptist. Luke also begins with the story of John the Baptist. John, however, begins in the beginning. And when he says in the beginning, he doesn't mean it in the way that Mark does. Because Mark, at the beginning of his gospel, says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the beginning of like the earthly life of Jesus John's talking about the beginning, and, and there should be in our mind like a, a definite like hearkening back to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning. That, that's the beginning that John's talking about here. Um, not the beginning of the earthly story of Jesus, but the, the cosmic beginning, the beginning of all creation. And here's what John wants us to see. Jesus is not just someone who was born in a manger 
and then who grew up to be a significant religious figure, Jesus is the very logos of God. That's the Greek word for word. The very logos of God. The word of God who predated creation and who is responsible for creation. So if you think a virgin birth is supernatural, listen to this. John, from the jump, is saying that Jesus is not just a creation of God. He's not just a prophet. He's not a, like, subordinate son to the Father who was sent by the Father. But he is God himself. And this passage is critical to Trinitarian theology, like our understanding of God as being triune in nature, being three in one in nature. We call this the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Um, We call this the three persons because they are united They are not independent persons. They are codependent. They are co-eternal. They are coexisting. That means God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are inextricably linked. They're inextricably united. And this is one of the most significant things that John wants us to see from the very beginning. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. And so John highlights things throughout his book like Jesus saying, I and the Father am one. That's John 10. And in John's view, Jesus means that literally. I and the Father am one. So this is, this is point number one for us today. This is theme number one. Jesus is God. Jesus is God. Verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Two critical themes for John, two words that come up over and over and over and over again are life and light. As far as the apostle is concerned, there is no real life outside of Christ. It doesn't exist. Everything else is darkness. Everything else is darkness. The language of Jesus as light is for John both metaphorical and literal, I think. It's metaphorical in the sense that Christ can uh, spiritually enlighten your life, bringing you things like forgiveness and hope and joy and peace. But this light also literally like exposes your true self. Like it, it shows you your sin. It shows you your failure. It shows you who you really are. And at the same time, this light shines to reveal the true path and the true way forward. It illuminates for us what is true. No matter how dark your darkness is, it cannot overcome the light of Christ. It cannot overcome the light of the gospel. You know, the synoptics show us Jesus telling his disciples, you are the light of the world. He says things like a city on a hill cannot be hidden. But what John does is intentional here. He shows us Jesus right at the beginning by saying that he is the light. And then later he says things like, 
John 8, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I think one of the things John's trying to tell us here is it is only because Jesus is the light of the world that any disciple could ever claim to be the light of the world. Because the light a disciple possesses is the light of Christ. It is the light of his gospel. So the theme here is really clear. John sees this earthly life as being nothing but darkness, but Jesus lights the way to true life, and that true life will bring light into your darkness that is unlike anything you have ever known before. So second theme, Jesus is the light of true life. Jesus is the light of true life. From there, John turns briefly, almost as like an aside, to the story of John the Baptist, verse 6. And by the way, it seems clear to me that all the gospel writers believed that the earthly story of Jesus really begins with the story of John the Baptist. That the story of Jesus doesn't actually start with Jesus, it starts with John the Baptist. And, and John, I think, will make that case as well. But just as an aside here, um, his intention isn't to tell us the story of John the Baptist here. It's, it's to point out, verse 6, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. This seems to be John the Apostle anticipating a question that some of his readers might be asking. Jesus is the light, but who's John in relationship to him? Like, and this is a question that will come up again. What about John? For us evangelical Christians, um, it might be hard for us to understand where that question would come from because the emphasis for us has always been on Jesus. But we have to remember that John the Baptist, for, for like contemporary readers... John the Baptist had an unprecedented ministry in his day. I mean, people were coming out to him by the thousands from all over. And, and all kinds of people, like all different groups of people were coming out to John. Like, so it was a significant cultural phenomenon. Um, and the Apostle John wants to make sure there's no confusion here. John the Baptist is a pivotal part of the story, he says, but he's not the Savior. He's not the Messiah. All he was doing was pointing people to the light. So that's just like a quick detour and then back to the main point, verse 9. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So this cosmic logos, this word who made everything, was stepping down into his own creation. And he was doing so with the utmost of humility. Like he came to everything and everyone that he made, and yet very few recognized him for who he really was. And that's true even today as well. Even the very ethnic group, that had historically been called God's people, who possessed all the prophecies about his coming, the very group that he was born into did not recognize him largely for who he was. But some did, verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God 
who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So some people took notice. And and you may recall um, in the book of Malachi that we just finished, by and large, the people of Judah are constantly disputing God's words. Like everything the Lord says to them, they dispute back to him. But, But if you remember, Malachi highlighted briefly one group that wasn't disputing God's words. Instead, they were gathering together to like discuss and meditate on God's words. And it described like how pleased the Lord was with that. He was so pleased, he called for a book of remembrance to be written so that he could sort of look back at the scrapbook and and remember this group of people who weren't disputing him, but who were truly dwelling on his words. The same thing's happening here in John's day. Same thing's happening in our world today. By and large, people reject what scripture says of Christ, but there are some, there is a remnant that do believe or who do believe. These verses, verses 12 and 13, are critical because they introduce us to two more significant themes that we will see over and over again. This is number three. It's that we receive, that word receive, we receive Christ by believing in his name. We receive Christ by believing in his name. So John is pushing his readers to consider the full implications of Jesus, not just as Messiah, but as God himself. And he's asking, do you believe this? Do you believe this? Belief here is wrapped up with what we could call faith. And we'll explore that more deeply as we get deeper into this book. But the idea is that the things that I believe I truly believe, shape not just what I do, but they shape who I am. And this confuses us because in our modern world today, I think we, uh, we have largely bought into the idea that maybe there are like levels of belief. Um, and I can't remember who I got this from, maybe somebody like John Mark Comer, but um, there's this schema where I have outward beliefs, I have inward beliefs, and then I have like heart beliefs, outward beliefs, inward beliefs, heart beliefs. Or you could call those, um, I don't know, you know, something like um, projected beliefs, outward beliefs, inward beliefs, uh, could be something like aspirational beliefs. And then heart beliefs would be like true beliefs, like the things I actually believe. And I think we think there are these kind of layers to belief. There are the things I want to project to the world around me that I, I may believe on some level, but I, but I primarily want other people to believe that I believe them. And then I have these aspirational beliefs, these inward beliefs, which I, I'm trying to believe, I want to believe, but I may not believe them perfectly. And then the real stuff, the stuff that's at the heart level. But when the Bible talks about belief, it does not have that kind of schema, right? It's not parsing between outward, inward, heart belief. No, when the Bible talks about belief, it is talking about the heart level, period. 
It's not talking about espoused belief or projected belief or aspirational belief. It's talking about real belief, true belief. And which we will see, I think, is, is an act of faith when that belief is placed in Christ. According to John, there is no other way to receive Christ. Um, as Jesus says only in the Gospel of John, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Thankfully, though, it's not simply up to us to like muster up enough belief or muster up enough faith. No, no, no. I think John's making the case that we all need like a heart transplant. It's not just that we need to move intellectually from one place to the other. We need to be changed. We need to be changed. And this is point number four for us. Belief in Christ. I'm getting down low here. Belief in Christ recreates us. Belief in Christ recreates us. This is recreation or what theologians would call regeneration. This is exactly what Jesus is describing when he later tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. For John, what we are and what this life is, is darkness. The light of Christ doesn't just illuminate the darkness. It doesn't just expose all the dirty and dingy stuff. The light also points the way like a beacon. It points the way like a beacon to true life. And true life is not simply a life where you just behave differently. Like true life is not a life where you have different beliefs from what you used to have. It's a life where you have literally been changed. You have been recreated. You've been regenerated, reborn. In the natural state, we are living in darkness and death, no matter how we feel or what we think. But through Christ, we are suddenly thrust into the true life, the illuminated life. And Jesus is the doorway. Jesus is the key, whatever analogy you want to use there. As Eugene Peterson says in the message, those who are reborn are the God-begotten. The God-begotten. Not blood-begotten. Not flesh-begotten. Not sex-begotten. In other words, what he's getting at there is the birth that we're talking about here is not what you're normally talking about when you talk about birth. This is the kind of birth that only, only God can do. It is like a spiritual rebirth. Verse 14 and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Back on the side about John again. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So this is describing what we call the incarnation. That the word put on flesh and bone and stepped out of heaven into this world. Or again, as Eugene Peterson puts it, he moved into the neighborhood. I love that. He moved into the neighborhood. John is the only gospel to state this in such an explicit way or in such a sort of meta way. 
the other Gospels begin by describing the incarnation in more Im- implicit terms. Like Matthew begins by highlighting the supernatural virgin birth. And then Mark picks up like way into the story. Jesus is 30 years old when the Gospel of Mark starts, and Jesus is being baptized. And you hear this divine voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Luke's Gospel also begins with the birth of Jesus and the birth of John, but, but Luke's Gospel primarily highlights the angelic activity that prefaces all of that. John just tells it like it is in a sort of linear way. In the beginning was the word. He was the creator. He was there in the creation. He made everything. He made us. He made the entire world. And then this word was made a man. He he himself became human and he lived among us. And some of us, we have seen his glory, he says, but that we is like an exclusive we because everybody hasn't bought into his glory. Everybody hasn't seen him for who he truly is. John's saying, those of us who believe have seen his glory. We have seen his glory, and it's a glory that's clearly not of this world. Because it's full of grace and truth. So this is our final theme. Jesus became fully human while remaining fully God. Jesus became fully human while remaining fully God. This is hard for us to hold. In my experience, we either want to make Jesus fully God or we want to make Jesus fully man because it is so hard for us to hold the implications of both of these at the same time. How can Jesus be fully human and yet also be perfect, right? Just that in and of itself is baffling to us. Um, It's a mystery. It's a mystery of the Christian faith. And whether you realize it or not, it's a mystery that you're looking at every week when we gather together for worship because we light two candles up here, and these represent the dual nature of Christ, the fact that he is both God and man. It's reminding us of that every week. So for those of you who think that whenever Jesus, for example, faced temptation in the wilderness, that it was easy for him, you're wrong. Why? Because Jesus was fully human. But yet at the same time, when it came to the cross, it was also easy for Jesus, or it wasn't easy for Jesus to just walk to the cross. Why? Because he's fully human. And and yet he did it. Why? Because he's fully God. Right? So, so we see his dual nature playing out, and yet it is mysterious at the same time. We see Jesus taking steps and doing things that we simply cannot do in his human form, and yet he is fully God. Verse 15 takes us back to John the Baptist we saw. John wants to make sure there's no confusion there. This is who John was talking about, by the way, when he said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. John's majoring on that because he was before me point here in the prologue. He ranks before me not just because he has the title of Messiah or son, but because he is God. And this is very similar to what Matthew recorded when John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to untie his sandals, guys. And that's not hyperbole. John wasn't worthy to untie his sandals. I'm not worthy to untie his sandals. You're not worthy to untie his sandals. Why? Not just because he's the Messiah, not just because his name's Jesus. John's point is because he is God. He is God. Verse 16, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And with these three verses, John closes out this prologue, and it begs the question, who is he writing to? Who's he writing to here? You know, Matthew's gospel is thought to have been written specifically for Jews. Um, Luke's gospel is thought to have perhaps been written more specifically for Gentile readers. Um, But in both of those cases, despite the ethnic nuances, the intended audience was probably the church. It was believers. You know, who else would be reading this? However, I'm, I'm somewhat persuaded by the position that perhaps John's aims were more evangelistic in nature. That maybe he was writing not only for the church, but also for non-believers. We don't know that for sure, but it certainly would explain why he is so direct and why he is so plain in identifying Jesus as God from the very beginning in a way that the other gospel writers don't. And it's not that the other gospel writers didn't think Jesus was God. They clearly did, and we clearly see it in their accounts. But it it was almost more like a given to them. It was almost more like an an assumption, a presupposition, that because the church is going to be reading this, these people already believe that. They already know that. That's, That's why we're talking about him in the first place. John, however, will make the case in this gospel that the grace that Jesus brings is unlike anything that could have ever been attained if you're a Jew through the law of Moses. And it's not that the law was bad or wrong or ungodly. No, it was from God. The reason why the grace that Jesus brings is better is, John says, because Jesus is superior to the ones through whom the law came. He is superior to Moses. He's superior, he says, to Jacob. He's superior to even Abraham. Why is he superior to them? Because he's God. That's the point. So let me wrap up today with just a quick question. And and the question is this. What's really in your heart as it relates to Jesus? Like as it relates to his divinity, like his identity? What's really in your heart? You see, see what's... What's tricky about beliefs and these like levels of beliefs that we've talked about earlier is, is that it can be really hard sometimes to dig into ourselves and ascertain what we actually think. Sometimes it's best evidence through what we do. You know, like, so you can claim, um, you can project to the world that you're not a racist person. And, and inwardly, you can aspire to not be a racist person But it's possible that in your heart, there are things that are embedded in there that in the moment come out, and almost you are shocked by them. The same same thing happens with something like pride. I want to project the world, I'm a humble person, right? And inwardly, I desire to be a humble person, and yet in my heart, I think I'm better than certain people, right? So the question is, what's truly in your heart as it relates to Jesus? As it relates to what... John the Apostle is saying of him. Is Jesus uh, a historical figure to you? Is Jesus somebody that just seems to be sort of the organizing catalyst for this social club that I get to be a part of called the church? Or is Jesus 
Truly the word, truly the logos through whom all things were made, is he truly the one whose life brings light into my life and illuminates the darkness and points the way like a beacon to reality, to true life? Not life that's colored by the darkness of our world, but, but what is real and true? Is, is that truly the Jesus I believe in in my heart? And, and my prayer for you and for myself as well is that as we walk through this book, I hope that you will allow the light of Christ to expose false beliefs, untrue beliefs that inhabit your heart and that inhabit my heart. And I pray that we would allow the Spirit of God to continue his work of sanctification in us, like conforming us more and more to the image of Christ, who is the Word become flesh. He has provided us with an example, he tells his disciples. I've given you an example to follow. And my prayer is as we dig deeply into this question of who is Jesus, that we will see that example clearly and that not just in a projected way or an aspirational way, but in a very real way, he will truly become the one who inhabits the center of our heart and guides our lives and our footsteps. So let me pray for us this morning to that end. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. Pray, God, that you would uh, inspire us this morning, not through anything I've said, but through the very words of your Holy Scripture, that we would be a people who would seek to give over more and more of ourselves to you through faith, that we would seek to expose and eliminate uh, the false beliefs or the untrue beliefs that inhabit our hearts, and that we would seek to truly have a change of heart, Father. For those of us who are not believers, that we would seek to place our faith in Christ and to give over our lives to him. And for those of us who are believers, Father, that we would continue to pursue putting sin to death, that we would continue to more and more make Jesus the true master of our lives, and that we would see him for who he really is, the true word, and the one who gives light to everything and to everyone. We love you, God. Thank you for your word. In your name, amen.